Our topic for today is canonization and the growth of Christianity. See on your handout. If you haven't had a chance to grab a handout, they're over there. Um, and there should be enough. I made 50 this time. Uh, if not, then please uh, everybody share with other folks at your table. No. So the first question that I have for you guys today is to get started on this very important word. What is a canon? Does anyone have any idea? One quick hint, canon with one N, with two N, that's the one that goes boom. <laughs> I used to wonder if maybe they were related, I found out they're not. So C-A-N-O-N. <coughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, so it has to be something that helps you decide um, on categories. Ben? I, I might just add to that definition and say it's, it's a body of works that are used for a specific purpose. So you might have a canon of, of works that you teach in a literature course or a canon of works that you use. I mean, in performing music, I'm thinking about a music example here. Right. So it's something that's been selected to use for a purpose, maybe. Okay, so it's a subset, a selection, something that, you, that helps you decide on your categories. Um, the original definition of the canon, actually, is the Greek word, and it is a little bit simpler than that. Canon is this. It's a ruler. It was a measuring stick in ancient Greece. It was actually cut from a reed or a metal rod of specific length that you could use to measure something for a building um, or... Actually, um, some of these metal rods were also put in a shield, clockwise like this, and it was what held the shape of the shield. It's what made things straight. So the story today is our movement from something like this, from a, a ruler, something to measure out length, to this, which is, this is a copy of the Greek New Testament, one of the uh, modern scholarly editions of the 27 books of our New Testament canon that um, scholars put together and said that these works right here are in some sense the, the measuring stick for the faith, so for Christian faith. So that's a little, quick little word study that might be helpful to give you a, a, a visual image of what it is that we're going on. Because the, our understanding of canon as a series of books, as a series of musical works that you guys have brought up, um, is an abstracted notion of a very concrete idea that uh, you want to standardize what it is that you're looking at and be able to measure it against something else. So before we get to the 27 books of our New Testament, we want to look back at the revelation of the gospel itself. Because when you first start measuring things, you don't start, you don't wait until we have 27 books written, put them all together and say, now we have a New Testament to go along with our Old Testament. So what are some of the ways that people would test or measure the revelation of Jesus that we see actually recorded in the New Testament. So, when Jesus is out preaching, how are, how are people accepting this? How are, how are they measuring against other things? Yeah, I did. Whether it's confirmed with signs. Confirmed by signs. What kind of signs do you mean? Like healing, miracles. Yeah. Signs mm-hmm. So, uh, they're, actually, they're called signs is one word um, in the New Testament. They're called deeds of power. So, um, Jesus and later the disciples are 
here's my new message, and to help prove it to you, I am going to demonstrate it in some very tangible way. So that's that's the one thing that you could do: put together, uh, look for signs. What's something else that people would do within the New Testament? Yeah, so that's why a principle that seems to be already in action is look at Scripture as it was defined then, which is not the New Testament itself because, well, it hasn't been written yet, but it is Old Testament Scripture, the Torah, the writings of the prophets. So you have Jesus very often in the Gospels quoting Old Testament Scripture and applying things to himself and saying, I am here as the fulfillment of this, and so if you know the, if you're familiar with the canon, if you're familiar with the set of measurements for the Jewish faith, you will see that I fit into those measurements right there. That those, those, or that those measurements were even made specifically, tailored specifically, for me to, to fit right in and become the fulfillment. So we have uh, deeds of power, we have uh, a set of uh, a canon already existent, in existence into which um, Jesus is fitting himself. Um, something else that's maybe even a little bit too simple to think about, though, is that the disciples had Jesus right there. And so when he said something, they could ask about it. So, in fact, in a, several times we have Jesus giving parables to a large group of people, and then later on with 12 or some subset of his disciples, he would give them further clarification and say, okay, this is what I was telling everyone, and now um, here is how I explain some of the, the difficulties that um, for you guys. And so there's a unique element to the period of Jesus' ministry, which is the fact that Jesus is right there. And when you have a dispute, you don't have to go back to a gospel writing about Jesus and what's the interpretation of this particular verse. You say, uh, teacher, rabbi, um, can you give us a little bit more help here? So that was something unique to that period. But as we'll see, after Jesus ascended, that particular resource is gone, and we're thrown back to some of these other things that we mentioned, which is the existing, the existing canon, the teaching, uh, the body of Jesus teaching as a whole, and of course the um, disciples were able to also perform deeds of power, and they had the Holy Spirit with them that could allow them to confirm their teaching in the same way that Jesus had. And what about when this starts to become a challenge? So Jesus is gone, and you have different disciples saying different things about what Jesus has said. Can somebody open up a Bible and um, look up Second John, one of the shortest books in the New Testament? And can somebody read out verses 7 through 11? So what do we see already going on in the pages of the New Testament once 
What's the specific teaching to look out for there, first of all? Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Yep. So we saw that actually with Junius last week. This is an early Christian heresy called uh, fancy word for it, Sophism, um, from the Greek word meaning to seem, that Jesus seemed to be here as fully human in flesh, but actually there are some writings where um, one of the Gospels uh, asked Jesus, well, are you really here? And he says, well, touch me. And the hand um, that the person wants to touch him with actually goes through his chest, uh, through the body, like when a, like a special effect in moves. Um, and so Jesus could, could seem for all intents and purposes to be fully present and fully incarnate, but actually wasn't. Um, and this is part of the matrix of belief systems that uh, Junius was talking about last week, which is called um, Under the Rubric of Gnosticism, um, where Jesus didn't seem to really be here. The point that I'd like to bring out, though, that already in the pages in the New Testament, what you see are people arguing over what the message of Jesus Christ was. You know, within a couple of decades of the time that he's um, already ascended, probably even sooner than that, people were having these kinds of arguments, and then they're being recorded in um, the, the pages of our New Testament. And so the key dynamic that I want to point out here is that canon, um, this, this idea of measuring, is necessary because the message that Jesus left is being challenged. It's being challenged from the very beginning, from very early on. And so the idea, canon is not a neutral thing. Canon isn't just someone standing over a large number of documents and saying, uh, which ones do we like best? Which ones are we going to put together and say that that's, that's enough, that's a sufficient and a, a, a pure rendering of Jesus' message on earth? What it is, is we have groups of followers of Jesus Christ, not all of them agree, and they have to come into conflict with one another. These ideas have to come into conflict, and the results of those con conflicts are what we have reported here. And what I'd like to talk to you about today are some of the earliest conflicts, which you can break down into a couple of distinct categories that are going to, to give you a very good sense of the broad picture. Um, there are, are a few different ways you can attack this early message of Jesus Christ. Um, and most other attacks after that are going to fall into those different, fall into those basic lines. So what I would like to talk to you about first is number one on your handout, first page. Um, if everybody didn't get, get a handout, I think there's still a couple more over there. And the first one is going back to last week and to talk in the more, um, more historical vein about um, Junius's excellent presentation on the theological aspect of Gnosticism. But what I've labeled the challenge of Gnosticism is the challenge of secret revelation. If you remember back to last week, there were groups of people saying that Jesus' public ministry, as you've all been talking about in oral tradition and now starting to write down, um, we're talking about you know by the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, these, these revelations are not sufficient. If you really want to be in the inner circle, you're going to need to listen to our secret teachings, whether these revelations are um, more oral tradition or um, they are um, beginning to be written down in this period. We actually have recently some archaeological finds, um, lots of documents that Irenaeus was talking about and has mentioned and summarized and that some other early Christians were talking about, we've now actually found in Egypt um, in the late 1940s. It's, uh, so we have a much better picture of what Gnostics were actually writing. Uh, for the longest time it was always 
early Christians saying, here's what the Gnostics believe, and we would wonder, well, you know, they're, you know, they're not exactly the most objective um, presenters of this, uh, of these theories, but now that we have these documents in hand, we can see that um, many of the um, teachings that Irenaeus presented were actually very, very much uh, presented in the text. He was not being um, overly biased in his interpretation of those texts. So Jesus' teaches, true teachings were secret. There's something in addition to what we have written down publicly. And as we mentioned, these are teachings that oppose the idea of an incarnation and actual suffering of Christ. So we can see that even as early as the pages of the New Testament and Second John. <coughs> Number one, we have the problem of secret revelation. Number two, we have a challenge of a limited revelation. There was a man, a teacher named Marcion, who flourished in the middle of the second century. This is number two on your handout. He died about the year 160. He taught mainly in the city of Rome. And the center of his theology was that Jesus brought a gospel of love, and a gospel of love that was so radically inclusive that it was opposed to any idea of law. Now, if you take a gospel of love that is completely opposed to the idea of law, you'll start to move down a particular track. And the track that Martin moved down is the one saying that actually the only apostle who really got that right was Paul. This dichotomy, you know, the, the, um, the, Christ, the love of Christ brings life and the law is, the letter of the law is death. And this led him in turn to reject Old Testament prophecy and the Old Testament writings as a whole. So he's completely throwing out the Torah and the idea of the God of the Old Testament as being the father of Christ. So this is similar to an idea that Junius was talking about in regards to the Gnostics last week, that they also had some problems with the Old Testament. They wanted to allegorize it, um, purify it, bring it up higher out of the sort of the everyday um, trials and tribulations of the, the nation of Israel. Martin went even further and he said, nope, the Old Testament is out completely. But he didn't stop there. And he decided that the, so Paul, Paul is the only apostle that really got it right, and the only gospel record that we have that's even close to what I'm thinking of must be the truth is Luke. But even Luke still is a little bit too excited about some of this Old Testament stuff, particularly you know, those early chapters about the birth of Jesus and about um, connections with Old Testament prophecy. So what he gave his followers was an edited version of Luke. So his rule was this theological idea that he superimposed onto the existing um, documents and the existing oral traditions to, to cut them down, to narrow them down and to say that no, anything that doesn't follow this rule that I've already found must have been an early corruption in the um, Christian teaching that has crept in since Jesus ascended and up into my time. So in less than 100 years, people have gone way wrong, and we need to cut out, separate the wheat from the chaff, and cut out, you know, in what it would turn out to be in effect about 80% of the scriptural revelation that was the, that was current at that time. Yeah, it is. Does Marcion ever discuss why he thinks he has the authority to do this, or why he has this knowledge? The, he doesn't, well, for one thing, um, we have almost nothing that he wrote. He, uh, again, uh, it, it's one of those things where 
the information that has come down to us is the summaries of his teaching and the tax on his teaching that come from other Christians who disagree with him. So we don't know exactly what his full, fully worked out reasoning was and how he, he how he came to this conclusion and decided that this clearly is this obvious um, truth that is standing out there that I need to, to uncover for everyone and to, to cut away everything that's going to accrue to it. But we do know that that was his fundamental theological idea. And once he'd arrived at that idea, he thought that I, that idea was so powerful that he was justified in it in conforming the rest of the Christian message, message to it. So that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, who, what gives him the authority to stand up and do this? Um, well, I suppose we'll never really be sure, but he did stand up and do it. And he is opposed by people in so many different places and so many famous early Christian theologians, second century theologians, that we can tell that his ideas had a lot of currency. I mean, from Western Empire through the East all the way out beyond the borders of the Empire to a famous um, theologian under the under Persian rule. Um, we've gotten, you know, as far as the, the Roman world was concerned, that, that was pretty much the whole, um, the whole breadth of creation was from Persia to Spain. And people had heard of Marcion in all those places and were trying to refute him there. So that he was Within Rome, he set up a rival church. He was excommunicated by the um, Christian congregation there, but that didn't stop him, and he gained quite a number of followers. And those were the, the outlines of his teaching. So first we have Gnosticism that says, the teaching that you have is okay, but it needs to be measured by secret revelation. Marcion saying, the teaching that you have is not okay, and it needs to be measured by this overriding theological idea, and we're going to cut things back cut them back down to size. And then the third kind of a challenge is also coming from the second century and centering around a man named Montanus. And Montanus gives us the challenge of continuing revelation. So he flourished around the year 172, a little bit later, after, a couple decades after the death of Marcion. And he taught that the Holy Spirit was now being poured out um, again in the last days so he believed, this was an apocalyptic movement, he believed that the, the end of the world was coming within his generation. Um, I'm sure you've never heard of any, anybody saying anything like that um, in Christian history before this or after. And his group was um, setting up new prophets. He himself, he, he set himself up as, I am prophet, I'm speaking with the words of the Holy Spirit. And he, there were two women um, that he had working very close with him. Uh, their names were Prisca and Maximilla, and their, their names also come down in the literature. And he believed that the new doctrine was being granted to him and to his prophetic followers, and they were creating a canon that was now larger than the one that had been um, being put together throughout the second century. And they felt free to add to it as they were led by the Holy Spirit. And so their group was known for this apocalyptic idea, the world is coming to an end, um, the spirit is at work. They also were known for their extreme aestheticism. They opposed all ideas of marriage and um, sexual activity, whether legitimate or illegitimate, and led, tended to um, really emphasize the teachings of poverty and to look down on other Christians and say that these Christians are to become far too worldly, far too interested in wealth and in creating families and being torn away from the message, but ours is one of stark reality of um, the impending apocalypse, and we feel 
um, justified and even obligated on those grounds to start adding things to the canon. So now we have these three. Yep. So were they like so sure that the apocalypse was going to come that they didn't care that they were going yeah, it's a funny thing about these movements. Um, you have them in um, Jewish history and Christian history where um, groups oppose the idea of ever having children. You think, well, you know, where are you guys going to be in 50 years? And they are usually that's the idea is that they are so convinced the world's going to end soon that it doesn't matter. Although many of these groups manage to continue on for a surprisingly long period of time, number one, by making converts. Um, and number two, some of them tend to be very good at bringing in sort of foundling orphans into the group and raising them. So that, that's legitimate for them, is to, to take a, a child that's been abandoned by uh, a Greek or a Roman family and bring it in and to raise it up um, as part of their group. And so they can replenish their numbers that way, even if they're not actually having children. Some groups also will divide, they'll, they'll create levels within their own group. Say that the highest people are those those most fully immersed in our message won't themselves marry, but then there are other people who are really interested in what we have to say, um, and we can allow them to marry, but they'll never be a full, fully a part of our group. Um, so that's another way that um, these kinds of apocalyptic, no marriage, no reproduction groups can keep themselves going for more than just a few years. So the challenge of secret revelation from the Gnostics, the challenge of a limited revelation from Marcion, and the challenge of continuing revelation coming from Montana. Yeah. It seems easy to imagine a society where the true believers are spending as much time fighting the political thoughts as they are spreading the gospel. I think that's an accurate image. We, it's tough to say just how much time people were spending, but um, judging by the amount of literature that we have from this period, a great deal of it, a very large proportion, is devoted to saying, no, here, fighting for what the Christian message is. And I think that, in fact, the dynamic that you're highlighting um, is are, are two forces that are very much in connected with one another um, and inextricably bound up with one another. So there's the idea that we're spreading the gospel and there's the idea that we're fighting for the essence of the gospel. And I think that fighting for the essence of the gospel so hard is actually a reflection of how widely and how quickly the message is spreading. Because it's spreading across cultural boundaries, across linguistic boundaries, across geographical boundaries very rapidly and people are, new groups are taking it on with enthusiasm and they're sometimes maybe not waiting until they're fully educated in it. Sometimes they're importing their own um, cultural ideas into the Christian message very quickly. I mean, we see that with Gnosticism. It's a very syncretistic understanding. It says, oh, well, so Jesus is giving us another part of what it is that we need to know about the world for salvation, but not all of it. And the people, the, the original disciples of Christ and their disciples are realizing that they not only have to propagate Christ's message, but they have to defend it. They have to set up these boundaries that we're talking about, this canon that we're talking about, and fight for that canon against exactly these different kind, these three different kinds of pressures. 
So I think that it's actually a testament to the strength of the early Christian missionary activities that they have these so many of these problems so early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, and in particular, um, I can think of the cases of Brazil and China, where missions are proceeding very rapidly, and very large um, church groups are growing up with relatively, since there's, especially in China, since there's, all, there's continually the threat of persecution, they're growing up relatively cut off from other groups of Christians, and growing very fast, and so there are many... Um, doctrinal elements that are questionable at best and sometimes things that need to be actively corrected that are going on um, where Christianity even today is spreading very rapidly. So I think it's a similar dynamic. Yeah? We we still have remnants of Marcion today then. We hear about churches or groups of people that God has loved and the law is dead Mm -hmm. even seen it on the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that idea has not gone away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are less likely to take scissors to their Bible these days, um, but <laughs> the the idea, the impulse behind it, I think, is still very much alive. Yeah, Paul. Uh, I, I think a point you just made, and Mark's really helpful uh, in the sense of, <clears throat> in one sense, you should be glad that in the in the in the process of proclamation that there is uh, tension, that there is a sense of conflict with ideas simply because it forces the church to figure out uh, what's our theology, what do we believe. Yeah. Uh, and I think when you look at, as, as, as we've listened to you guys the last several weeks, it seems like a lot of what we believe today is a result of having to be forced to come to terms with, well, you guys said this in the midst of our proclamation, how do we, how do we, how do we come to grips with that? So it seems to me that evangelism and um, apologetics, if you will, or or not that, but theology uh, go hand in hand. They, they, mm-hmm. they need each other to continue to sharpen the sword, if you will, instead of forcing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great thing to highlight. With that, yeah, more? a quick question. I'm going to piggyback. I'm going to put the air out of your... Um, in particular, uh, Montanus and his group, um, I, I, you know, I thing that strikes me, and I, I think part of this comes from, from being over in the hills so much, is, is how the idea of the charismata, the, the charismatic gift, uh, you know, from part, you know, second century, first mm-hmm. century, uh, is still playing its way out today uh, in the local church, and I, I just would, um, I'd love to give you one of your guys' feedback on just kind of what, what What's the fuel for that? The, the longing for more, for uh, continuing revelation, if you will. What, in your guys' studies, what's the sense that you get that? One dynamic that scholars have pointed out with the um, Montanism in particular is that I thought that mm, this is one of the first periods in the history of Christianity where people are starting to look back and say, Early Christianity is something that happened before us and was a period of intense excitement and new revelation and an amazing um, 
societal and emotional and cultural experience that we have started to take for granted and we have started to allow to become rigid or calcified in um, church hierarchies and in um, set places for meetings of worship and set liturgies and things like that. We've lost some of the fire of the beginning. And the way to get it back, rather than seeing the revelation anew and experiencing it truly for ourselves, is to start adding to it again in the same way that it was being added and poured out on the disciples through Jesus' ministry or through Pentecost, and to recapture things in that way. So that would be my best answer to to that question, to why these groups continually, in the in the guise of trying to get back to primitive Christianity, start building on it and building something else and adding their own. Um, yeah. So what I would submit to you as um, someone having studied many of these early documents and looked at a lot of the, the scholarship on what we have and when we have it, is that there's something that, for lack of a better term, people call a canonical core, um, a group of books that are coming together in more or less the same form that we have them today by the early second century, by a couple of generations after the ascension of Christ. You've got references to at least three of the Gospels, usually Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John tends to come in a little bit later um, and be accepted widely a little bit later. Um, and the most of the letters of Paul uh, seem to be being, being put together in groups. It seems pretty clear that Ignatius, if you remember back to a few weeks ago, Ignatius of Antioch, the guy who was um, traveling to Rome to be executed and writing letters, he seems to have had access to a, a grouping together of Paul's letters, um, not just the single letter that each different community would have had when it was those letters were originally written to different communities, um, and some of the other letters that um, have come together in the New Testament. Um, and that this canonical core was something that united Christian and Orthodox believers throughout most of most, if not all, of the areas of that Christianity had spread to that time. Um, the only real debate in the scholarship about this idea is that is whether or not this comes together fairly early in the second century or a little bit later on. But this, if you're if you're looking for these 27 books um, all together in a list, you're going to be a bit disappointed um, for this time period. That, that doesn't come together for, for quite a bit later, but what I would like, what I'd hopefully like to present to you guys is that the majority of it, um, and I think that the, the essential outlines of Christian faith in the Gospels and Acts and in the major um, letter writings of the New Testament came together quite early. And what I'd like to do now is take you guys through um, one of our primary source documents, so if you please move with me to page three. This is a document entitled The Muratorian Fragment. And this is our earliest extant list of New Testament documents. Um, and you'll notice because it is right there in the title, the fragment, it's not going to tell us everything. Um, 
whether or not it originally named all 27 of these books, we're not quite sure. Um, it also named a couple of books that haven't made it into the New Testament canon, although it's a little bit, it, it, it qualifies this affirmation of those books. Um, and we can see, though, that even though it starts in, in mid-sentence, because um, this manuscript was found at Milan, city of Milan in northern Italy, in the 17th century by um, an early modern biblical scholar, and it dates to about the 8th uh, the, yeah, the century, and the manuscript itself does. But the writing in the manuscript, scholars have decided, probably comes from the second half of the second century, mostly because it mentions some people that I've talked about with you as, as contemporaries of the author, and they all died by the end of the second century. So seems like a pretty good, seems pretty dateable, even though there's, there's no mention of an author in it because we, we're missing the beginning and probably also missing the end. And there's no statement within it about where it was written and by whom and exactly what time, but just by, based on this internal evidence, that's what we do as historians. We look for names that are mentioned, events, things like that in the writing, the, the context of the writing, and that's, that's about where we put it. We put it in the, the second half of the second century. So contemporary with these major, these three major conflicts that we've been going through. Um, and it's called the Meritorian Fragment, named after